listening to the On Call Empath Show. All right, guys, we are back for another episode of the On Call Empath, and you guys do not want to miss this episode. My next guest, Dr. Lena Haji, is a clinical uh, psychologist specializing in forensics. She deals with depression, anxiety, personal disorder, personality disorders, and she's been doing it a long time. She's one of the best in her fields, and it is an honor to have you, Dr. Ahaji. How are you doing today from Miami, right? I am, well, from New York. From you know, New York. New Yorkers have to keep their <laughs> New York identity, as you can see in the background. Yeah. Uh, yes, but living in Miami, correct, and I can't thank you enough for inviting me on this podcast. I'm so excited to discuss psychology, forensic psychology. Yeah. Yes. I was just thinking like, I've had so many therapists on this podcast and the stuff that you do is like a little bit different from some of the people that I've had where they deal with families and, you know, just everyday things. You're more into like the correctional, like forensic side of things. Let me ask you, how did you choose that specialty and, and why is that kind of, why did that interest you to go into that part? Uh, that's a very good question. Forensic and forensic and correctional, which are actually a little bit different yeah. but along the same lines, um, is a very specialized. So, you know, it, it takes somebody who I think people who work in forensic and correctional psychology have to adore it or else it's <laughs> not work. Um, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist at a very young age. I didn't realize forensic was kind of calling me, um, my parents worked for the United Nations, so it was drilled into my head at a very young age that I had to kind of pick a profession that helped people and the underprivileged, so to speak. So that was, and I am grateful for that. You know, my parents were very much think about those who don't have, think about the underserved populations. And um, when I was about 19, I took a class, uh, a kind of a bachelor's level forensic psychology course called mm -hmm. Psychology and the Law. And, you know, this bombshell gorgeous woman walks in and she kind of looks like a Barbie doll to stereotype and she's talking <laughs> about serial killers and sex offenders and she reminded me of Clarice from Silence of the Land and I thought like, I'm sold if right. this you know gorgeous woman can work You're with right. serial killers and murderers like I, this is it and and so then I just that kind of pursued that path from then on yeah yeah I mean a lot of us, like we think like on TV show on crime scenes and stuff like that, you'll go testify in court. Like you have to prepare that yourself, right? Like you have to go to court, you have to go in front of a judge and you do the assessment on, on pretty much people that are mentally unstable or not. Is, is that kind of some, some of the parts of the job that you do or? Yes, that's part of it. I actually testified this morning on Zoom court. Oh, I just wrapping up. <laughs> yes. Um, it was an interesting case. It was a, a defendant who has a traumatic brain injury and they're mm -hmm. trying to figure out if he can, he has a history of violence. So it's more of a question of, is he a danger to society? Does he need to go to a psychiatric hospital versus mm -hmm. uh, prison? So that was kind of very interesting. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, forensic psychology is really anything having to do where psychology intersects with the law. Mm -hmm. So correctional psychology is more in the prison system, which I did that on and off for 20 years. So it's, it's more people who have already been um, convicted, they're already serving their time. And that's more, mm -hmm. treat, a little bit more treatment oriented. 
where and risk management, a lot of risk management, sure. whereas forensic psychology is more um, having to do with the legal process. So competency, not mm -hmm. guilty by reason of insanity, uh, sex offender risk assessments, violence risk assessments, um, sentencing assessments, and I can go on and on. But that's pretty much uh, the gist of forensic yeah. professional psychology. Yeah. I mean, were you into this when you were growing up? Did you watch crime shows or like, <laughs> this is like very fascinating to me. This is like a treat because I don't I have too many people on the show that, that have done a lot of the stuff that you have. I'm sure you have a lot of crazy stories, which we'll get to at the end. So guys stay tuned for that. But yeah. Did you like, kind of like have any courses, like going to high school and college, like any legal classes or did you, did you just kind of, not really. I mean, I, I, I still, to this day, the amount of forensic television that I watch is not okay. It's, yeah. it's unwell. I remember the first prison that I worked at, I was like 23. I had a bachelor's degree. I had no idea what I was doing. And I used to come home and put on like forensic files or the first 48 or whatever law and order. And my mother used to say, don't you get enough of this at work? And I was like, no, I mean, I've watched every serial killer documentary, every forensic show you can. And I'm still like that. It's, I mean, people wow. ask me like, don't you want to watch a comedy? And I'm just like, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are podcasts dedicated to like crime, like crime scene and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people out there that are listening and tuning in, like, you know, like Silence of the Lambs when they went to or they went to uh, just kind of do evaluation on on the prospect where he was behind bars. Do you do you ever is that kind of accurate? Do you have to go to the actual facility and do that, like with someone yes, that's like restrained? Well, so I, I like. Yes. Yeah, so Silence of the Lambs is actually pretty, pretty well done. Um, <laughs> and, he, and, and Anthony Hopkins played a psychopath fantastic to the T and yeah. psychopathy is one of my areas of, of, of interest expertise, if you will. I, I, I provide a training on psychopathy. Um, but yeah, I worked in the prisons for 20 years. So when you're in the prisons, I mean, you're in the prison, the mental health unit might be away from the inmate cells, but I've been in cells with inmates. I've been cell side with inmates. I've had riots break out, fights, stabbings, suicides, wow. people getting high. I mean, I've, 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 I do have a lot of stories um, and yeah. And, and due to HIPAA, you know, you have to still right. even their state property, which is a horrible term, even though they're incarcerated, they still have privacy rights. So mm -hmm. you cannot have a correction officer with you at, at all times, unless it's, you know, they're really wow. deemed dangerous um, or a violence risk, but yeah, uh, being alone with inmates uh, 20 years, I did that. Just wow. and I still do that. Yes. I'm sure you got a lot of stories and I do I mean, <laughs> being like more in the female with all males. Like, I'm sure that's got to be a little intimidating, like coming into a, a place like that, but you're probably used to that, right? I'm used to it. Yes. Um, I think the bottom line is people think, you know, they, they think inmate and they just kind of put them in this box and okay. really, inmates, you know, inmates are humans. They're, yeah. you know, yes, you have some more violent, some that are high ranking gang members, some that are psychopaths, Yeah. but really they're just humans. So the best tool you have when working with inmates is um, your gift of gap. You know, you treat them with respect. 99% of them will treat you with respect. 
Um, mm-hmm. A lot of inmates are people who kind of just took the wrong path. Yeah. They have mental health issues. They have substance abuse problems. They do have a sure. history of trauma. They had low socioeconomic conditions. And so, you know, we have to remember they're, they're humans. And, and as long as you treat them with respect, not all, I should, right. <laughs> I should emphasize that you do have your, you know, ones that are really out there and that just are just very psychopathic and don't care at all. But most of them, you treat them with respect and you, you know, you command respect. You, you say, just because I'm a woman in an all male facility does not mean you can treat me any other way, any way you wish. And so respect and boundaries and consistency. And once Mm -hmm. they see that in you, they're very likely to, um, kind of like it's earned, like respect. Well, cool. So I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, but before I, I ask you the next question, I want to let everyone know um, any, if you're having any mental health issues or, or any serious um, health issues, you definitely go see a, a qualified physician or a therapist. We're just two people talking on the podcast. So I just want to throw that out there. So let's dig in right here. Um, I think this next question, I think a lot of people are confused about. So I want to kind of get it out in the open. What is your take on the misconceptions of bipolar disorder and narcissism? Because it seems like a lot of times we will, like people just Google it and be like, oh, they're, they're a narcissist or they have bipolar. And, and we both know it's like a spectrum. It's not black and white. If you can kind of explain that and just set, set the record straight. Yes, absolutely. This is a great question. Um, You know, both bipolar disorder is more organic. It is organic, meaning it it stems in the brain. There's an actual chemical neurological imbalance, which means that it is typically treated with medication. So there is grandiosity, if you will. There can be grandiosity in the manic phase of bipolar disorder, aka when somebody is manic, aka they're high because they're going through a manic phase. They can have uh, grandiosity, high self-esteem, need for stimulation. And so they can present as narcissistic or having a huge ego, but it's really neurologically based. Whereas narcissistic personality disorder is very different because it is a personality disorder. And a personality disorder is a pervasive characterological pattern. So it's more ingrained in their personality. It's not neurologically based. There's no medication for it. It's, it's more, uh, you know, an inflated sense of self, an obsession with unlimited power and fantasy, um, interpersonally exploitative, aka they take advantage of other people, but it's, 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 part of their personality. It's who they are as a human. Whereas bipolar disorder, it's not exactly a part of their personality. It's because they're sick. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, that, that perfectly makes sense. And one thing I was wondering is, I mean, the, there is nothing in the books that talks about narcissism. I mean, is it a spectrum? I mean, someone could have these traits, but if let's say someone has like 10 out of like 10, like mm-hmm. traits of narcissism. I mean, does, does that constitute for someone being like a hundred percent narcissism or can you be on a spectrum where, oh, he has some tendencies, but he has empathy or, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, yeah, that's a, that's another good question. I'm going to always 100% of the time have everybody and whether you're a professional or not, a prof- or a licensed uh, mental health professional or not, 
this is the Bible, the diagnostic. Yes. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yep. Disorders, the DSM-5, and it's sitting in front of me, not just because I knew I was going to be on this podcast, <laughs> but because I literally breathe and eat and live this. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I actually just posted something about this on my Instagram where, you know, just because somebody has a big ego or somebody has an inflated sense of self or they're selfish does not mean that they meet criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. There is very specific criteria in the DSM and it is again, a pervasive pattern. So you can, you know, have a friend or, or, or a boyfriend or somebody in your life who's selfish and an egomaniac, that doesn't mean that they have narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder has one, two, has nine different criteria that have to be met. Wow. Um, and, and so I, and that's kind of my pet peeve because you see a lot of people kind of throwing out narcissism, you know, around a lot. Right. She's a narcissist and it's like, no, they might be, you know, I, sorry, if I'm not allowed to curse, they might be an asshole and they might be, right. selfish, but that doesn't mean they have this particular narcissistic personality disorder. And I, I tell me if I'm incorrect, but isn't it like 6% of the population, at least in the US? I mean, it's a very low, low number. You know, I'm going to once again, refer to the DSM and it says, yes, the prevalence estimates for narcissistic personality disorder in community samples is zero to 6.2%, which is very low. Right. And that doesn't mean people aren't selfish or narcissistic or ego driven. It just means they're not full blown narcissists, according to the DSM five. Um, and also, um, whether speaking of gender in the DSM, it says that 50, 50 to 75% are male. So yes, it's yeah. more common among males. Gotcha. I mean, I was just wanted to clear that record straight. Yes. I, you hear so much online and people Google stuff. So that's good to know that, uh, you know, these, these statistics. So, so we talked about those. I mean, when we go step up a little further, like psychopaths, you know, people that have no like conscious, like, like people like Epstein, like these high profile cases, which is very fascinating to me. Um, in those situations, when someone is just lacks like human life, they're just dark inside. Mm -hmm. Is that like the worst thing? Like the, is a psychopath where they, they just, they don't have any sense of uh, self and they just don't care if other people, uh, if they hurt other people, like in your opinion, like what does that entail? Psychopathy is fascinating to me because it's not as well known as you would think because psychopaths in media for a very long time have been kind of just painted as serial killers or, you know, your Jeffrey Dahmer, your Ted Bundy, your Epstein. And really there's a whole body of research coming out on what are, they're now calling successful psychopaths. They're all CEOs, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and that's, that's a little more alarming because even though psychopaths may not have any empathy or any conscience or however you want to operationalize it, um, that doesn't mean that they're all criminals and it doesn't mean that they are all hurting people per se. Uh, if psychopathy is directed towards pro-social behaviors, which is really the only treatment, you know, they might be a CEO or an attorney, or they might work on Wall Street, which is where uh, Dr. Robert Hare, who, uh, <laughs> who is the psychopathy expert, talks about how, you know, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have bodies in their freezer, right? They can right. be politicians, and I will... <laughs> 
stay out of the political because once that's I get another started, podcast, uh, yeah, that's another podcast, <laughs> but they can definitely be politicians and high ranking CEOs. And because those positions still kind of satisfy that need for power and grandiosity mm-hmm. and admiration and the narcissistic component and the rush and the, you know, all of those things that psychopaths tend to strive for. Um, so Yes, to answer your question, is it the worst thing? I think it's the worst thing if they're active in uh, criminal activity, for sure, because they're never going to feel differently. Sure. And there's no there's no treatment for that. Correct. I mean, who's going to admit they're a psychopath? Yeah, they're a psychopath. They're a psychopath. (laughs) So it's it's interesting because the treatment for psychopathy used to be what they called insight oriented. Right. So it was kind of teaching them to, they would have, for example, um, meetings with their victims or, or victim, family members of victims to try mm-hmm. and instill remorse and empathy. And that turned out to be horrible because they are incapable. They are neurologically incapable of feeling remorse and empathy for other mm-hmm. humans. It's just the way they're, they're hardwired. Mm-hmm. And so what they found was that with this insight-oriented empathy treatment, they Psycho- psychopaths were getting worse because what they were doing, and I talk about this in my webinar, what they were doing was they were mimicking human emotion. Mm. So they were going beyond before the parole board and pretending oh. they felt sorry or pretending they had remorse and pretending they, they became better psychopaths essentially. <laughs> so when it comes to treatment, really the only treatment is behavior modification. So mm-hmm. instead of uh, you know hitting everyone anytime that you feel like it, maybe you, I don't know, you know, clean up the litter at the beach. I mean, that's a very <laughs> example, but it's really right. redirecting the behaviors because the internal is thus far 2022. Yeah. We have not found a treatment for the insides of a psychopath, if you will. It's just so interesting stuff. Like this, this is what like I just do on my free time. Just like, just study all the different kinds of, uh, ways in psychology. Um, so I have to ask you, like, this is a curveball. If you can kind of tell me like you have, let's say you're working with two different people, two different ages, one's 19, one's 65. They both committed the same crime, uh, murder or the worst heinous crime ever. Obviously there's different treatments. There's different avenues. What is the main difference between someone that's maybe older and versus somebody that's just maybe juvenile or maybe 18 around that adult age would they be treated differently and what would the treatment look like that's a very good question and i think age is just one of the factors you know we've when it comes to psychological treatment we're really taking a biopsychosocial approach these days which means assessing the biology the psychology and the sociology right so the 19 year old you know does he come from a low socioeconomic background does he have an education why did he murder? Was it an impulsive murder? Was it a defense murder? Was it a psychopathic murder? What purpose did, the, was it a gang affiliation? You know, whereas the 60, 60 year old, you know, was it, was it, and I'm stereotyping here, but was, was there a sexual component? Was it yeah. a revenge? I mean, there's so many reasons why somebody might commit a murder. So instead of just looking at age differences, which of course play a role, you would have to look at the whole entire picture. Sure. You know, the, the education, the mental health history, is there drug addiction, is there trauma? And, and what are we trying to treat exactly? Are we trying to treat 
violence risk? Are we trying to treat impulsivity? Are we trying to treat anger? You know, so we really have to individualize the the the, the murderer, so to speak, and then mm-hmm. come up with what are we trying to treat? What is what is the problem, and what are we trying to treat? And that's why I always stress evaluation. Um, I think too often times we go right into treatment, but we haven't really evaluated. You know, you mm-hmm. can't treat somebody without evaluating them, and evaluating the evaluation goes. Um, it, it's a long it, way. Yeah, a long way. And it's, it's, it's very underrated in my opinion. So your evaluations are obviously like golden to like going into court and stuff. That's what they go off of based on your opinion. Correct. Correct. Oh, I see. That's, that's interesting. Um, so I wanted to just kind of save this last question for the end, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering like, you know, how common is the insanity plea? Like, let's say somebody did a heinous crime is a very low percentage that people get off on that. But like you see all these high profile cases, for instance, uh, Epstein and all this stuff, like they have money to mm-hmm. buy the best lawyers and get the best people. In your opinion, like, is that something that someone can use? Like, do you see people using that, that plea a lot? Or is it very hard to prove that someone's insane? So it's very Hollywoodified because it makes for great TV and great movies, right? Mm -hmm. I always watch something that has the insanity defense because (laughs) it's so interesting, like you said. Um, The statistic that I have heard, and it could have changed, it could be be different now, but I heard that less than 1% of all criminal cases attempt to go for the insanity plea. And of those 1%, only 1% of that 1% are found actually not guilty by reason of insanity. So it's extremely rare. You wouldn't think that, you know, watching forensic shows and, and movies, but it's extremely, extremely rare um, for, wow. for what they what they call NGRI and get not guilty by reason of insanity to 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 have that be a plea and then to have that actually uh, be the reason that they committed a crime. It's very rare. And it's yeah. hard to prove because you're basically assessing their time, their mental status at the time of the offense. It's not like like a competency to proceed to trial, for example, you're assessing their mental status at the time that you're talking to them. Do you understand legal proceedings? Whereas an insanity defense, you're actually assessing their mental status at the time of the offense, which is very difficult to do, obviously, because it's in the past. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's like where I live, there was a like recently a school shooting um, and the kid was 17, I think. But I think that's what they were going for. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's even possible for a juvenile to, to, you know, I don't know what it would, what the case, like the facts would be like for somebody to shoot up a school and then go for like the insanity case, like being underage. Like, I don't know if there's a big difference being an adult or under, you know, uh, 18 years old, but I'm sure there's a lot of components to that. Sure. I'm, I'm sure it would be actually, I'm sure it would be more likely to fly with a juvenile because, mm. you know, who really wants to convict juveniles when yeah. they're young and their brain isn't fully developed. And that's a big component that their brain wasn't fully developed. Um, sure. That being said, and I've been doing actually a lot of um, 
evaluations recently, it's, it's just mind blowing that this is where our country is, but I've been doing school shooter evaluations. It's like a thing now mm-hmm. where I get these referrals of these high risk students who have threatened to shoot up a school or they found a diary with a plan to shoot up their school. Yeah, yeah. I come in and evaluate to see if they are an actual threat or if they were just venting like an adolescent, Right. you know, but the case that you're talking about, um, it was in Oxford, Michigan in Oxford. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, they would have to prove you know, to get a gun, go to a school and murder people takes a lot of thought. Premeditation. Yeah. yeah. So how can you really No, Yeah. It's kind of hard to say unless they, they were floridly psychotic and delusional and they really thought somebody was after them or the government was implanting chips in their head and telling right. them to do something of that nature uh, along those lines. It sure. would be really hard to prove an insanity defense, I think, because it's like you said, it's so premeditated. Yeah. So let's talk about like stress, um, just kind of ending it on a note. Like I know you've probably had some hard cases. Um, if you can think about w- the work that you've done all these years, is there something that sticks out um, that you want to leave us with? Like anything that you want might want to just tell the audience, like maybe something personal that happened to you or maybe something to how to deal with somebody that you're not sure if they're a psychopath or a narcissist, like, cause we, I know that we do that a lot. A lot of people just go ahead and start labeling and they have no business doing that because they're not trained to look at all the criteria right, and right. you have to go to someone like you who can just right. be like, no, they're not a narcissist. They, they're just a shitty person. Like, right, you know, right, right. <laughs> he's just an asshole. Like he's not, a yeah. narcissist. he's just not a nice person. And, and guess what? We come across a lot of those and that doesn't mean that they are mentally ill, sure. you know, as far as on a last note, gosh, there's so much I would love to say, but yeah, my, my main point is, you know, there's so much misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. So social media makes it so easy for people to just come to their own conclusions and Google symptoms. And I'm guilty of it too. You know, we're all human. We have <laughs> constant stimuli, you know, I've had a headache and I've Googled it. Like, okay, great. I have a brain tumor. And I'm gonna you know, like, I don't think it's, it's that, you know, people are smarter or dumber. I think it's just human. Um, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, something personal, I have dealt with my own battles a lot throughout my, my life, especially in my earlier life, you know, and even though I won't go into, to detail, I really would like to end the stigma around mental illness, um, sure. you know, depression and anxiety and, and, and other things that I've gone through, even a history of trauma and, and, and I've managed to, you know, come out somehow the other side. And, and I, I think that, um, you know, I, I also want to point out that having mental health problems is an explanation, but not an excuse. And that mm-hmm. sounds harsh, um, but, you know, our suffering is not our fault, but our healing mm-hmm. is our responsibility. And I think that a lot of people are saying, you know, it, it, mental health is becoming so vogue and so trendy that sure. people are kind of saying like, well, I don't want to take that test at school because I need a mental health day and it's like no that's called life that's right anxiety everybody you know experiences that and unless it's like really clinical depression or clinical psychosis or bipolar one of these more serious mental illnesses i think we need to be very careful with how we're throwing around the term mental sure yeah i mean that's like a buzzword nowadays like you know so i mean even with like a lot of my content i'm be careful like you know, just labeling somebody as something concrete, because you just don't know these days, you know, so it's been a true honor to have you on this podcast, you are like, 
very knowledgeable about this subject and your expertise has just blew me away. Like your Instagram, you guys definitely check her out. So before we leave, can you just tell us where we can find you and what you're up to? I know you're doing webinars and things like that. So go, if you can just let everyone know like where they can find you. Sure. And this was an absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough for, <laughs> for having me. And, and I, I'm going to tell everybody to check out this podcast for sure. Um, so um, my website is uh, www.risepsychological.com. And if you go to webinars, there's a really interesting webinar on psychopathy and one on malingering, which means faking mental illness. Yep. <laughs> um, you can get three CEUs if you're a, a licensed professional in Florida, but even if you're not even in, in mental health, they're very um, layman friendly and they talk about psychopathy and malingering. Um, and then my Instagram is uh, at Rise Psychological Services. And so, yeah, check me out. I would love to hear from you guys and hear what else you want me to talk yeah. about. I'm always looking for ideas. Yeah, you guys check her out. I'll have all the links in the bio. Stay tuned for the next episode. And we are out. to the on